The following audio is from Jacob's Well Church. For more information about Jacob's Well Church, please visit www.jacobswellgb.org. Finally, just one more thing. The reason why I want Chad to wear a tux with tails is so that when he sits down at his bench to play the piano, we can watch him go and sit down. So... This morning, I want to start by uh, introducing you to an acronym. Many of you have maybe heard this acronym before, but the acronym is HALT. How many of you have heard this acronym before? Okay, how many of you have not? All right, some of you didn't raise your hand. That's curious. All right, so HALT. HALT says, before engaging in any self-destructive behaviors, ask yourself, are you hungry, angry, lonely, or tired? And then it goes through different questions like, when did I last eat? What are you dealing with right now that is stressful? When is the last time you socialized? Have I been getting enough rest and giving my body the breaks it needs? And so in other words, when you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, you're prone to make self-destructive decisions. You're prone towards self-destructive behavior. You see this in children many times, don't you? If they're crying, if they're angry, if they're mad, sometimes it is very legitimate. Sometimes it is simply because they're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired. When we are suffering through things, even things as small as being hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, we are prone to make self-destructive decisions. We are prone to self-destructive behavior, which the Bible calls sin. In a very real way, this week, Peter is acknowledging in today's passage that Christians, when they are suffering in a variety of trials, when they are grieving over those trials appropriately, are also susceptible to bad judgment, are susceptible to pursuing sin. I mean, we can think about this in our own life. After you have had a hard, long day, how do you treat yourself? When the boss is a jerk, when your spouse is stubborn, when the kids are overwhelming, when your parents are unfair, where do you go to medicate? When you're hungry, angry, lonely, or tired, what self-destructive behaviors do you engage in? Maybe you become sharp, and ungracious with those who are around you. Maybe you go on a shopping spree and go and buy things that you don't really need in order to satisfy the longing of your heart. Maybe you run to the bottle or romance or gambling or gluttony. Maybe you run to self-pity or judgmentalism. Maybe you even run to passivity and you become a couch potato when people in your house need your love and attention. You see, there are a whole host of self-destructive behaviors that we run to when we're stressed out, when we're suffering, when we feel like we need relief. If I'm honest with you, as I look at this list, I have run to most of these at one time or another. I know that my heart, and I'm assuming your heart too, is so prone to not only pursue sin, in the midst of suffering, but to actually use your suffering to justify your sin. To say, I deserve this because it has been a hard day, a long day. 
And so today from God's word, we want to answer one question. When we are suffering, when we are tempted to medicate in unhealthy and self-destructive ways, in those moments, how do we fight for holiness? What arsenal do we have to pursue obedience? Today, the answer from 1 Peter is very simple. I'll give you the answer. The answer is simply to think about the gospel. To remember the gospel. To remember the truth of the gospel. And let the truth influence your head, your heart, and your hands. If you would, please open up to 1 Peter We're in chapter 1. We'll be looking at verses 13 through 21 today. It's page 1014 in the Red Bible and page 1315 in the Children's Bible. We're starting our third week in this book of 1 Peter, a a book focused on suffering and salvation. Peter opened the letter, if you remember, with a praise for the Trinitarian salvation, that we have a heavenly Father who has chosen us and loved us, that we have a Son who has sprinkled us with his blood and a Holy Spirit that is sanctifying us. Last week, we looked at verses 6 through 12, in which we unpacked the joy of our salvation, a salvation that does not have to be disrupted by suffering or by grieving or by sightlessness, a joy in which prophets studied and angels long to look. This week, we'll see the passage starts with a therefore, meaning that it's reminding us of the things that just came before, the glorious and wonderful salvation that we have. And Peter is saying, in light of this great salvation, in light of all that God has and is and will do for you, in light of all this, live holy lives. And so Peter is telling us to halt to gird up our minds and to think clearly about what is true in the midst of suffering that we might live holy lives. So let's read together 1 Peter 1, verse 13 through 21. Verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with, imper- not with perishable things such as gold or silver, but with the precious blood of Christ, like, le- like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God. Let's pray. Lord, we come to you this morning confessing that we are a people who in the midst of our suffering, in the midst of our stress, medicate in very self-destructive ways. 
Lord, we come because we know that you have a better plan for our lives than we do. We know that you give a greater medication than anything this world has to offer. And so, Lord, as we look this morning on how to pursue holiness in the midst of suffering, pray that you would grant us the grace to understand it, the grace to believe it, and the grace to live it out. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. If someone were to say to you, that person is so holy, what would that mean to you? Or what would it mean if, if you just tried to define the word holy? How would you define the word holy? I'm guessing for many of us, we would respond by saying that to be holy means to live perfectly righteous, to be flawless, to be completely without sin. And while that is a part of what it means to be holy, that is just an aspect of it. If you look in the Old Testament, this word holy is used many, many times, and it's used not of people, but of inanimate objects, of objects that can't do anything good or bad. They're just things. For example, in Genesis 2-3, we read that God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. It's a day. It can't sin. It can't do what's righteous. It's a day. Exodus 28-2 says, And you shall make holy garments for Aaron and your brother, Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. He's talking about clothing, being holy. He goes on to say, you shall make a plate of pure gold and engrave on it like the engraving of a signet, holy to the Lord. And so how can a plate be holy? How can a shirt be holy? How can a day be holy? What does it mean for something to be holy? Well, let me give you a simple definition. Holy means to be wholly devoted to God. Holy means that something is wholly devoted to God. And so that Sabbath day was wholly devoted to the service and worship and praise of God. That plate was wholly devoted to the service and worship and praise of God. Those clothings were set apart from ordinary use to be wholly dedicated for the worship and service of God. To be wholly is to be completely surrendered to God. And so this certainly includes our conduct, but it also includes our entire personhood. For you to be holy means that there is no area of your life no passion of your heart, no thought of your mind, no action of your hands that does not belong exclusively to the glory, worship, and enjoyment of God. It includes all of who you are, your motivations, your joys, and even your suffering. It means we are wholly, completely devoted to God in every area of our life. We are exclusively and comprehensively dedicated to worshiping, praising, and enjoying God. How's that going? <laughs> you know, when we thought holy was just being good, that seems like a much easier definition now, doesn't it? But holy means that every part of you is dedicated completely to God. In today's passage, Peter reminds us 
of the motivation and the power to pursue this holiness in the midst of suffering. And he does this in verses 14 through 21. But I first want to look at verse 13 with you. If you would look along with me. He starts by saying, therefore, again, that's that's because of our great salvation. He says, preparing your minds for action. When you literally translate this, it's girding up the loins of your mind for action. In biblical times, they wore these more dresses, or there's probably a better name for it, but they wore these robes, and it was hard to run in them. They would hinder you. And so what they would do when they needed to take action, when they needed to do something strenuous, is they would gird up their loins and they would tuck it in their belt so that they could run freely. And so what Peter is saying here is gird up the loins of your mind. Get ready to put your mind into action. And then he goes on and saying, and being sober-minded, that is to be of sound mind, to be free from the intoxication of lies that the world is pushing upon you. And he says, set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so what Peter is saying here in verse 13 is that between now and when Christ returns, we need to not only engage our hearts, but we have to engage our minds in order to battle for holiness. We need to gird up the loins of our minds. We need to be sober-minded in order to set our hope fully on the grace of God and Jesus Christ. And so in modern day language, let's put on our thinking caps and let's consider the foolish stupidity of sin and the beauty of holiness. So first, when we are tempted to sin, we're to gird up our minds and remember intellectually that we have been adopted by the Holy One. Look at verse 14. He says, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. You see here, Peter is referring to them as children because they are children of God. And he's calling them obedient children. He's commending them for their faithfulness to God. But also, in the midst of this, he is remembering that all of us, without exception, are tempted to live according to our former ignorance. You know, Peter is making a very important point here. He is telling us that sin is always stupid, that sin never makes sense, that sin is always absurd because sin is always self-destructive. In fact, if we pursue sin, what we have to do is put the truth out of our mind and pursue lies to go and get it. And he's telling us that it doesn't make any sense, especially for the Christian to pursue sin. It is always irrational and is always inconsistent with who God is and with who we are. You know, many in the academic world would potentially say if to become a Christian, to be a Christian, you have to set your mind aside and just follow your heart. But what Peter is telling us, what God's word tells us is if you want to think, this is where you will end up with the truth. And so we have to think, we have to engage our minds. And as Peter is in the midst, so Peter in the midst of their temptation is exhorting them to fight against temptation by thinking about the gospel. Verse 15, he says here, but as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. I think to properly understand the passage that we're talking about today, you need to see that there's this theme of adoption running throughout the passage. In verse 14, we are called children. 
In verse 17, it says that we call God our father. In verse 18, it says we've been ransomed away from our forefathers, assuming now that we have been ransomed to a new father. And so when it says here in verse 15 that he has called you, he who has called you is holy, what we are reminded is that God has called us to be his children. He has set us apart. He has adopted us to be his own. And because your father loves you, and because he is holy, and because he has called you to be his children, he says, be holy as I am holy in all your conduct. Brad Paisley is a country singer, God's music. And um, can we delete that from the audio? (laughs) And he sings a song that's called, He Didn't Have to Be. And he talks about a uh, growing up as a son of a single mom and how when men would come to date his mom, they would often find out about him and they would run away and want nothing to do with her. But then a man came along who not only loved his mom, but also loved him. And he married uh, the mom and he raised the boy as his own. He adopted the boy as his own and he poured his life into uh, the boy. And then the song goes on and the boy grows up and he has his own family. He has his own child. And the chorus goes like this. As they're looking through the nursery window at his new baby, he says, looking back, all I can say about all the things he did for me, talking about his father who adopted him. He says, I hope I'm at least half the dad that he didn't have to be. Let me ask you a question. Do you see God as an employer Or do you see God as a father? You see, if you see God as an employer, then you live obedient in order to please him, to gain his acceptance. But if you see God as your father, you live to please him because you've already been accepted. You've already been loved. He has already adopted you to be his child. And he never had to do it. He was under no obligation to bring you to be a part of his family, to be his beloved child. He had no reason to do it except for the very fact that he loved you. Ephesians 5.1 says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, not as employees, but as children of the living God whom he loves you. And cares for you. Be imitators of that God. Be imitators of your heavenly Papa, Abba, Father. And so, when suffering is strong, when temptation is pressing in, gird up your mind. And remember, I am a child of the Holy One. I need not submit to the ignorance of sin that I did for most of my life because I have been adopted by God. I am his child and I want to be like my daddy. He is holy. And so I want to be holy. And so one reason why we would pursue holiness in the midst of our suffering is because we want to be like dad. We want to be like our father. We want to be holy like him. Secondly, when we're suffering and tempted to make sinful, self-destructive decisions, we must gird up our minds and remember the gospel love of our heavenly father. 
that our Heavenly Father loves us so much that he dares to discipline us. Look in verse 17 with me. It says, And if you call on him as Father, who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourselves with fear throughout the time of your exile. This verb to call isn't simply to acknowledge someone or address someone. It's not just saying we call this person God, but to call is to make an appeal. It's a very intimate plea for help. For example, this term is used in Romans 10, 13, when it says everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who pleads for him, who seeks him, who, who, who declares their need for them, And so Peter is saying here that if you have the supreme privilege to call upon the God of the entire universe as your father, your daddy, who loves you and cares for you and saved you, be careful not to abuse his kindness. Be careful of entitlement. Have you ever been tempted by sin and thought to yourself, it's okay, God will forgive me anyways. It's okay. Jesus already paid for all my future sin. It's okay if I do this. Have you ever thought that way? It's entitlement. It's abusing the grace and mercy and kindness of God. Peter says, if you call God Father, remember he is also Lord. He is a heavenly Father that cares more about your character, more about your freedom than you do. And he's a heavenly father that disciplines his kids for his loving purposes. Now, this word discipline is not in this verse. And so you might wonder how I'm getting that. It's actually wrapped up in that word judge. That word judge, when we hear it many times, we think of the future when Christ will come back and judge the living and dead. But the word judge here is actually a uh, present participle, which means that it's something that's ongoing now. And so you could read verse 17. And if you call on him as father who is judging impartially according to each one's deeds. This is a wonderful part of the gospel that we often fail to praise God for. That God is not a father that simply gives birth to us and walks away and abandons us or becomes disenchanted with us like so many earthly fathers do. But that he is a heavenly father that is intimately and intricately, moment by moment, involved in the life of his kids. And he loves them so much that he will dare to discipline them. Hebrews 12 talks about this in a way that really is better than I can articulate. And so I just want to read it to you. It's Hebrews 12, verse 5 through 11. It says this. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have endured. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you are left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us and we respected them. Shall we, much, shall we not much more be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, that we 
may share in his holiness. You see it? There it is. He disciplines us that we might be holy as he is holy. He disciplines us that we might share in his holiness. Verse 11 says, For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. You know, many times when we pursue sin, there seems to be no repercussions, right? We're not struck by lightning. Bad things don't immediately happen all the time. And so we may wonder, does God really discipline his children? You know, speaking as a father, I can tell you, and if you're a father, you know, if I discipline my kids for everything they did wrong, that's all I would do. And so we shouldn't mistake God's patience for God's approval. God disciplines us at the appropriate time in the appropriate ways because he loves us and cares for us. And it is appropriate for us to fear that discipline. In awe and reverence. You see, fearing God and loving God are not opposed to one another. They're joined together as we understand him as our loving heavenly father that cares enough to discipline us. Imagine if you have kids. Imagine if your kids stole some candy, okay, from the cupboard. I know it's hard to imagine, but imagine if they stole some candy or if they stole the cookie from the cookie jar. Not me, then who, right? But imagine your kid stole some candy or stole a cookie and you came to them and you asked them, did you steal this candy? And they look at you straight in the face and say, no, I didn't steal that candy. And you know that they're lying to you. They know that they're lying straight to your face. If you love that child, you will hate the liar inside that child. If you love that child, you will hate the thief inside that child. If you love that child, you will discipline that child because you care about that child and because you want the best for that child. And if that is how an earthly father treats his children, how much more our heavenly father who loves us and cares for us and chastises us that we might share in his holiness for his glory and for our good. And so it is a proper motivation to pursue holiness out of a reverential fear of God, not as judge that would condemn you, but as a father who disciplines his children that he loves. Finally, we should gird up our minds when we are tempted by sin and remember that we have not only been adopted by the Holy One and we will be disciplined by the Holy One, but that we were ransomed by the Holy One. Verse 18 knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. What in your life do you consider precious? Maybe pictures that you have? Maybe your house, your car, your children. These things are precious to us, right? Here Peter says, what is precious is the blood of Christ. That it is more precious than great riches. That it is more precious than gold or silver. And the question is, what makes the blood of Jesus so precious? Well, what makes Jesus' blood infinitely more precious than anything this world has to offer 
is that it can do something that gold can't. It can do something that silver can't. It can provide for our deepest need in the way that our children can't. Jesus' blood is infinitely more precious because it is the only thing sufficient to pay the ransom for our souls. About two years ago, a little less than two years ago, there was a school librarian named Bridget Flynn. Her and her daughter were sorting through old documents in their basement. They were looking for a picture for her daughter's wedding shower. And as they were sorting through these old family documents, her daughter came across three pages. And she asked her mom, what are these documents? And she said, oh, it's just a love letter. Well, her daughter, Rachel, began to read the note. And as she put the three pages together, she realized it was something far different than a love letter. It was discovered that it was actually America's first ransom note. That's what they call it, America's first ransom note. On July 1st, 1874, two Ross sons were taken from their front yard. One son was released, but the other son was held captive. Three days later, the parents received the first ransom note in American history, evidently. And it said, you will have to pay us before you get him from us and pay us a big cent too. And then it says, this is the lever that moved the rock that hides him from you. $20,000, which today would be about $400,000. It says, not $1 less. You cannot get him without it. And then finally it says, Mr. Ross, be not uneasy. Your son, Charlie Brewster, be all right. We has got him and no powers on earth can deliver him out of our hand. No powers on earth can deliver him out of our hand. Our condition from birth is worse than this child's. All of us, by our own choosing, by our own sinful nature, have been taken hostage. And there is no power on this earth that can ransom us away. All of us have chosen selfishness. All of us have chosen sin. All of us have chosen to medicate in ways that are unhealthy, self-destructive, and offensive to our heavenly father. And as a result, we have become prisoners. We've been held captive to Satan and to sin and to death. And we are absolutely hopeless because none of us can break free from this bondage for Satan is stronger than us. Sin has mastered us and death is inevitable. And there is nothing in this world that can ransom us. $20,000 could not ransom us. $400,000 could not ransom us. All the money in the world could not ransom our soul from the bondage of Satan, sin, and death. But the good news of the gospel is that our ransom came from outside of this world. That our ransom was provided by God himself. The ransom for our soul is nothing less than the Holy One, the perfect one, the lamb without sin, who is spotless and without blemish and sent by the Father. You see, what makes Jesus' blood more precious than anything in the world is it's the only thing that can ransom your soul for all eternity. Our loving Heavenly Father ransomed us. And by the blood of Christ, And so it is the blood of Christ that is the most valuable commodity in the whole world. And here's the great irony. The most valuable commodity in the whole world is free. 
It costs God everything. It costs you nothing. It is the precious blood of Jesus that sets the sinner free from the bondage of sin. It is the precious blood of Jesus that overcomes death. It is the precious blood of Jesus that conquers Satan. Jesus' blood is the most precious thing in the entire world and is offered to you free of charge. And so let me ask you, is the blood of Jesus precious to you? Have you accepted this free gift? Christ on the cross dying for your sin, the blameless sacrifice on your behalf to set you free from the power of sin and from the penalty of sin. Have you accepted this priceless gift that is offered to you of no charge? This is where joy is found. This is where contentment is found. It is offered to you. It is precious. And it ransoms us, as he says here, from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, meaning that it doesn't just free us from the penalty of sin, but it frees us from the power of sin. In some way, Jesus' blood gives us free will for the first time in our entire lives. And that it gives us the opportunity to choose holiness, to live in a way that is for the glory and honor and worship of God as we are created to be. Have you claimed the blood on your behalf? The passage continues, verse 20. Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you. Before time began, our perfect heavenly father foreknew and foreloved Christ, his son. It was the most wonderful, most beautiful relationship between a father and son that the world has ever known. The most loving, the most intimate relationship. Christ existed from eternity past as the son, eternally begotten son of the father. And they had this wonderful, glorious, loving, amazing, precious relationship. And yet God demonstrates his own love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, He sent his most precious possession, Jesus Christ, to die for you, to die for me, to ransom our souls and free us into a relationship with God. Verse 21, who through him, through Jesus, are believers in God. In other words, not in any God, not not in the God of the Muslims or the God of the, the Buddhist or whatever, but the true God, the one true God. Through Jesus, your believers in the one true God, who raised Jesus from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Why did God the Father raise Jesus from the dead and glorify him into heaven? So that you can have faith that it's your destiny as well. That your death will not be your final death but that God will raise you from the dead and he will take you into heaven where you will sit with Christ. You will love Christ. You will enjoy Christ for all eternity. But the father also raised Jesus that we could have a hope, a certain hope that our pursuit of holiness is not in vain, that our faith will become sight and that our suffering has a divine purpose. So why should we put off sin and pursue holiness? Because God the Father has given his most precious possession 
to ransom you out of those futile ways and bring you into the light that you might live happy and holy. Let me end with this. Yesterday morning, we had a men's breakfast. It was a great men's breakfast. Dick Buchler shared his testimony with us. Thank you again, Dick, for doing that. And at a pivotal part of his, a pivotal part of his story was when he was in, in war in Korea. And his troops were under heavy fire. And knowing that his life and the life of his troops were in jeopardy, he sent the other troops away. And he cried out to God. And he said, God, if you get me out of this, I'm yours. Afterwards, we had a question and answer session. And, and a person asked Dick the question. He says, you know, if, if at that point you weren't a Christian, if at that point you were kind of antagonistic towards God, why in the world did you cry out to him? And Dick responds saying, you know, that's a very good question because I was actually wondering that same thing earlier this week. Why did I cry out to a God that I didn't believe in? And so he strained his mind for a while to think, why in the world did he call out to God in the midst of the heavy fire, in the midst of the combat? And after a long pause, he responded saying, I guess when you're in that situation, you call out for Papa. At the beginning of the sermon, we asked you the question, when you are tired, when you're hungry, when you're angry, when you're suffering, and you're tempted to sin, you're tempted to medicate in unhealthy ways, in destructive ways, how in that time do you fight for holiness? Well, I want to give you a very precise answer. Because my, my guess is when you are in that moment where it seems so tempting and so beautiful to pursue sin, you're not going to pull out my sermon notes and say, what did Pastor Dan say? And so I want to get you, give you something very concise. When you are in that moment, when you're at that flashpoint, when you're under heavy enemy fire and it seems like you cannot get out alive, I want you to ask yourself one question. And it's just three words. And you'll have to use your mind to remember it. And you'll have to use your mind to ask yourself this. When you are tempted by sin, ask yourself this one question. Who's my papa? Who's my daddy? Who's my father? Because what is the answer to that? Well, if you have trusted in Christ for your salvation, you can say, my daddy is the Holy One, the one that had adopted me as an orphan when I didn't deserve it. When I was unlovely, he loved me and cared me and brought me into his family. And he has called me to be holy because he is holy. And that is the desire of my heart because I want to be like my dad. He asked the question, who is my daddy? And we're reminded that our daddy is our Heavenly Father, who is attentive and intricately involved in every situation of our life, at every moment in time, who dares to discipline us because He loves us and cares for us. Who is your daddy? He's the one who gave up the most precious possession in all the universe to ransom us away from our futile ways inherited from our forefathers, that we might live free, that we might live fully human, that we might live happy and holy. And so when you hit that flashpoint, 
when sin is screaming in one ear and the Holy Spirit is whispering in the other? Gird up the loins of your mind. Put your thinking cap on and ask the question, who's my papa? And as you answer that question, sin will become stupid and holiness will become beautiful. Let's pray. Lord, forgive us for so often not thinking. In the midst of temptation, Lord, we pursue the immediate relief instead of considering who our Heavenly Father is. Lord, let us, let us live in light of our adoption. Let us live in light that we are your children, that you are a holy God who loves us and cares for us, who's paying attention to us, who's nurturing us, who wants to discipline us for our good and for your glory. But most of all, you are Papa, you are Father. And we desire to be like you. Lord, we are so weak. We are so prone to wander. Thank you for the forgiveness that we get through Jesus Christ. And Lord, strengthen us to gird up the loins of our minds in the midst of temptation and to remember the gospel, to remember who our Father is, who loves us and cares for us and takes care of all of our needs. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.